it's a, I don't think I've sung it to that tune before, but it's a nice tune, and it? it's a good tune. So let's uh, make, well, let's make verse 3 our, our prayer before we turn to this passage. Search till your fiery glance has cast its holy light through all, and I, by grace, am brought at last before your face to fall. Amen. Well, I don't know when you last heard a sermon about hypocrisy. How many, how often do people preach on the subject of hypocrisy? But uh, Jesus preached on it an awful lot, actually. <laughs> if you look through the Gospels, in here's another sermon or address of Jesus, which he uh, where he talks about hypocrisy, Luke twelve. Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Yeast, Jesus calls it. Why yeast? Well, yeast is alive. And yeast does what life always does. It reproduces and fills its ecological niche. It spreads throughout as much as it can. You only need a a teaspoonful in your dough to raise the whole loaf. You only need a, a teaspoonful in a gallon of fruit juice to turn all that sugar into alcohol. A small amount of yeast can do an awful lot. And I think that's why Jesus calls it yeast here. Because a small amount of hypocrisy can spread and do an awful lot of damage. We're looking at this last public address of Jesus and um, we're looking now at these two verses, verse 25, well, three verses, sorry, verse 25 to verse 27, where Jesus particularly addresses the issue of hypocrisy. In a sense, this whole uh, address is about hypocrisy, but this is where he particularly addresses this issue of hypocrisy. And it's connected to the rest of the text so um, verse 25 is kind of about ritual cleaning cups and things and that points back perhaps to the law of Moses which we considered last week and verse 27 Jesus talks about tombs and he's going to go on to talk about who is inside these decorated tombs and who killed them in the first place and we'll be looking at that next week But tonight, this evening, we're going to look at this issue of hypocrisy itself. These two woes focus on the nature of hypocrisy. And clearly they're metaphors. You can't literally have washed the outside of the cup and not the inside. I mean, how would you do that? But uh, it's a metaphor. They may well have literally whitewashed the tombs, or some commentators say they um, lime-plastered them. 
and probably the Pharisees didn't do it themselves actually I guess they got somebody to do it for them but um, they might have whitewashed the tombs but that's not really the point of the illustration these are two short parables and there are two they're similar but they don't say quite the same thing and so we need to look and see what each has to say but what at first seems quite simple when you actually dig into it a bit turns out to be surprisingly complicated so it's going to take a bit to um, dig into this so I've got a slide here to show you how we're going to look at this these two verses <coughs> so you have some idea where we're up to and how we're how we're tackling it so we're going to go through these headings first of all we'll look at what hypocrisy is and then we'll spend a little bit of time in the Sermon on the Mount thinking about act and intention and then when we've done that we'll come back to these two specific woes the washing up one and the whitewash one and then at the end we'll remind ourselves again of that warning to be on the guard against the yeast of the Pharisees so that's how we're going to address this issue. So first of all, what is hypocrisy? What is a hypocrite? Well, actually, the word hypocrisy comes almost directly from the Greek. The Greek word is hypocrites, and which I believe literally means one who wears a mask, but um, by analogy comes, came to mean an actor, a person who takes on a character, I'm not an expert on Greek drama, but I believe they actually used physical masks to do it. But actually, these days, we demand more of our actors, don't we? We don't ask them to put on a face, a mask that they hold in front of them. We ask them to put on the face, these character. Have you ever watched Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs? It's absolutely brilliant. Everything, the eyes, the facial expression, the gestures, the body language, they all scream creepy serial killer. I'm sure if you met Anthony Hopkins in Starbucks while he was in that character, you would really feel you were having coffee with some sort of monster. What a scary experience that would be but actually, whatever our senses tell us, we don't actually believe that Anthony Hopkins is a serial killer, do we? We don't actually believe that Daniel Radcliffe can do magic, even though it looks like it when we watch him on the, on the films. Hannibal Lecter and Harry Potter are fictional characters. They're not real. But so easily we lose ourselves in fantasy it's one of the attractions of online gaming and virtual reality isn't it that in that world we can be anyone we want to be we can be Lara Croft if we want to be we might be a middle-aged overweight coward in real life but in virtual reality we can be a young hero with rippling muscles and a, a gung-ho attitude the only thing is, this is virtual reality, it's not real reality. 
And you might say as long as we keep the distinction between fantasy and reality clear in our minds, then perhaps that doesn't do much harm. The problem comes when we blur the line, when we try to convince people that our virtual reality avatar is actually us, that it's actually real. And yet to some extent we all do that, don't we? If you think about it, we all kind of project a different personality in different locations. In church, at work, in the home, we do behave slightly differently. It's almost impossible to avoid. It's our camouflage, you might say. It's as natural a way to blend in as a chameleon. And in a sense, we couldn't go out without our mask any more than a tiger could go out without its stripes. That's what it uses to blend in. And you might even say that up to a point, that might be a good thing. If the mask is an aspiration, it can actually help. I mean, I suppose you might argue that if the high we get from playing a hero in a video game encourages us to be fitter and stronger and more courageous in real life, then that might actually be beneficial. But the problem is when we substitute the mask for the reality, isn't it? When we pretend that the avatar, the character, is real. And worst of all, of course, when we come to believe it ourselves. That was the that's the real danger of hypocrisy, that when we come to believe it ourselves. And that's why Jesus calls the Pharisees blind, as he does in verses 24 and verses 26. It wasn't that they were putting on a show, as it were, but they knew it was all show. They were actually starting to believe it themselves. They'd started to believe their own propaganda. In a sense, it's not that they were deliberately deceiving their followers. It wasn't a scam in that sense when they traversed land and sea to try and uh, make converts. They really believed they were doing the right thing. But they deceived themselves. The deceit was convincing to other people because they had conceived them, deceived themselves. Verse 30. It's worth remembering the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is Luke 18. So I haven't put the pages up again, have I? But it's Luke 18. I'll read it out to you. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's only a story, of course, but it's a story with a point. There's an, another story told about this parable, which, again, probably isn't true, but uh, it's worth repeating, of the Sunday school teacher who had uh, taught her children to about this parable and then said now children let's thank God we're not like that Pharisee 
We can easily say that. We can easily think that, can't we? And the point is, of course, that it's not that the Pharisee in the, in the story was somehow trying to convince God. It's not what he says. He says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He's not trying to convince God that he's righteous. He doesn't see the need for it. Whose perception of reality is it that's skewed here? It's not God's. It's not even the tax collector's. It's the Pharisees. That he's looking at himself in the wrong way. So we will come back. <coughs> well, sorry. We're going to look at this is- issue of act and intention. We think about act this morning, but an act is important. But there's a bit more to be said about it than that. It's worth reflecting on these particular practices here just for a moment. As far as I can work out, neither of these practices, washing dishes or um, whitewashing tombs, is actually a requirement of the law of Moses. I can't find it anywhere. If you know different, you can tell me, but I can't find it. The law says a lot about washing bodies and clothes, a lot about food rules, and a certain amount about uncleanness from contact with dead bodies. So these rules are kind of in the right ballpark, but as far as I can see, these particular practices are not requirements. But on the other hand, you could argue that they're both a pretty good idea. All right, the Romans may have lacked our knowledge of microbiology, but you don't need a PhD in bacteriology to realize that eating off dirty plates is a, a shortcut to food poisoning. Romans were quite clean on cleanliness generally. It's a matter of common experience that you don't want to eat off dirty plates. If you do, it's going to make you ill. And tidying up your cemeteries is a good idea, isn't it? We see these films, don't we, these American war cemeteries. The Americans seem to be particularly keen on having uh, tidy cemeteries. And they'll have a, a guard and somebody who go, presumably keeps it all clean. They always look clean on the films. Somebody must come and clean up. And it's not a bad idea to honour the dead by keeping the cemeteries looking nice. And so these woes are illustrations. It's not that Jesus is condemning the practice as such. He's condemning the thinking that the Pharisees are, are putting around. They seem to be thinking something like this. The rules of the Mosaic law are designed to make us holy. And of course that one Jesus had referred to on tithing certainly was part of the Mosaic law. But if those rules make us holy, surely by adding more rules, we're going to be even more holy. Well, the premise is correct, but not the conclusion, because it, understands, it misunderstands the function of law. And perhaps these extra rules are the heavy burden Jesus referred to in verse 4. And it's a kind of thinking that Jesus consistently opposed throughout his teaching. I once... Um, heard an art historian saying that the Victorian, the high Victorian view to art was that art was decoration and therefore the more decoration the more artistic and that's why Victorian buildings tend to be very ornate well the Pharisees seem to have had that rule thought about holiness 
that uh, rules make us holy, and so the more rules, the more holy. But unfortunately, it doesn't quite work like that, as Jesus made clear on many occasions. And we're going to digress slightly and look at this connection between act and intention. Acts are important. We were thinking that this morning. Phil was reminding us that this morning. And I thought while he was saying, yes, it would be a sorry word without hugs. Thinking this afternoon, that's true. Same thing this morning. It would be a sorry word without hugs and kisses, wouldn't it? But then when you reflect on that, you think, but sometimes somebody gives you a hug to get close enough to stick a knife in your back. Jesus was betrayed how? By a kiss. It's not just the act itself that matters. The intention behind it is at least as important. In fact, I think you'd argue more important. So to understand this, we need to look at some of Jesus' other teaching. And um, a question, actually, that troubled the Reformers and Puritans. And they wrote on it. I've read, occasionally read things on it that the Puritans wrote. Let me remind you of two passages from the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5. I've put the actual uh, passages there. There are... Jesus says lots about various sins, but the two I've just picked out are the perhaps two most well-known ones, the most recalled ones, the one on murder and the one on adultery. Matthew 5:21 to 22 says the following, You have heard it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Or a few verses later in verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, as I said, this verse, this wording of it, actually puzzled the Puritans particularly because is Jesus actually identifying the intention and the temptation with the act? It almost reads like that, doesn't he, when he says anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But that is rather puzzling because if you reflect on it a bit, you realize that that doesn't quite make sense. You can't identify the intention with the act. Here's a few reasons why you can't. Before the act is committed, you have a chance to change your mind. You might have the, act, the um, intention to commit the act. You might be contemplating murder. But until you've actually done it, you can still decide not to. And what about this issue of consequence? The immediate consequence of the intention affects only you. 
the immediate consequence of the act obviously affects the victim and those around. And this was the thing I think that really puzzled people, particularly around the time of the Reformation. If the temptation is the same as the act, then what motivation is there to resist the temptation? How, does it, how can you talk about resisting temptation? It doesn't make sense. If, you've, if the fact you've contemplated adultery means you're already guilty, then you might as well go ahead and do it because it doesn't make any difference. And I say this, this puzzled people, particularly the Puritans, and the answer I'm giving to that is kind of the answer that the Puritans gave, although I'm going to express it in slightly different language. And it asked the question, therefore, if Jesus is not actually identifying the intention or the temptation with the act, what actually does he mean? And we can get to understand this if we think in terms of the use of rules and outside appearances. And that kind of is what he says. We might, the first thing you might, that might stop us committing murder is the fear of arrest. He who commits murder is worthy of judgment. And the judgment there is clearly the judgment of a human court. At least that seems to be the implication. We might avoid adultery because of the fear and shame of being found out. And those things aren't entirely useless because at least they make us pause and think. But what really matters is what we think next. Having had the temptation, what do we think next? Do we ask what the rule is for or do we seek a way around it? So if you start by thinking that the important thing is punishment, then what are you going to do? Well, you're going to go away and plan the perfect murder, aren't you? The perfect murder is the one, of course, that nobody realizes a murder. Or you're going to go and commit adultery and find some way of doing it without being found out. So that might be your first thought, that the rule is about punishment. But of course you don't have to think very hard before you realise, well that doesn't kind of work as far as God is concerned. You might be able to avoid the police finding out that you've committed a murder. You might be able to avoid your wife or husband finding out that you've committed adultery. But God will know. And so that's not the Pharisaic error. They weren't quite that stupid. They, they knew that God saw everything and so they found a much more subtle way of subverting the law they had avoided that error just as in a sense the Pharisees had avoided the error of open idolatry they would fallen into a much more subtle kind of trap and they're starting viewing the command as a box to be ticked a yes no thing where fulfilling the letter of the command was all that mattered. In fact, they'd forgotten what the purpose of the law was. And if we treat the law like this, we'll soon find some other path that doesn't break the letter of the law, but instead breaks its intent. 
our hate and jealousy will be expressed in some other form instead of murder. Our lust might stop us committing adultery, but it will still call us, cause us to despise our wife or husband, won't it? We'll still be comparing the spouse unfavorably with the object of our lust. And that's going to poison the marriage relationship almost as much as if we'd actually done the act. And that's at best. In fact, it's quite likely that in the end, the command itself will become despised and rejected. If we're always looking for a way around it, then in the end, we'll just junk the thing as irrelevant, won't we? Like that law that apparently is still on the books that we're all supposed to practice archery on a, a Sunday afternoon. We've just said, no, that's out of date. We don't need to do that anymore. We can do that with other laws too. So what is Jesus getting at? And the point here, I think, is that while the rules and commands are not entirely useless, they're not ends in themselves. And I say this was the way the Puritans thought about this, and I think they're right. They suggested that the command against murder is actually meant to remind us to conduct our relationships on the basis of love and respect. That it's not, although it's expressed negatively, it's actually a positive command. The command against adultery is actually a command to honour marriage and to love our wife or husband. It's those two, perhaps, that lend themselves of all the Ten Commandments to being twisted. Some of the others, it's more difficult, honour your father and mother. Though even that, the Pharisees had made that something about money. It's kind of difficult to twist the command not to covet. But even then, you can probably do it if you try hard enough. So I'm not really coveting. I, you know, I, I just happen to like their, his computer, which is bigger and more powerful than mine. I'm just going to have one the same, I think. You could convince yourself you weren't coveting when really you are. <laughs> the point is that these commands are really positive. They're meant to make us live better. They're meant to change our minds and our hearts and so it's our heart that has to be guarded and so it does make sense to resist temptation and I think when Jesus says if you look on a woman lustfully he's not saying you know that's something oh that's a nice pair of legs he's saying are you in your heart thinking that that woman I'd rather have that woman or I suppose it was that man I could equally say that man than the one that the Lord has provided for me. So let's just think about these two particular uh, illustrations, this, this idea of washing up and then the whitewash. So verse 25, the washing up is, the reference is obviously to the ritual washing of crockery before eating. And as I said, washing your utensils before eating is actually a good idea. And in any case, it's hardly plausible, is it, that the Pharisees were really recommending you just wash the outside. 
Why would you do that? And indeed, how would you do that? But Jesus is using the practice as a metaphor here. He's saying that for all the good these rules are doing you, and they might be useful rules, but for all the goods they're doing you in promoting real godliness, you might as well just be washing the outside. Because that's what it amounts to. You're not worrying about what's inside, where the real source of corruption is. You're just making it look good on the outside. So it's not really doing any good at all, even if it was a a useful sort of rule. The way you're applying it is not doing you any good at all, because it's not affecting your heart. And so he says these rules were set up by blind guides, and the rules were pointing people in the wrong direction. The Pharisees had become kind of spiritual bureaucrats. They'd made holiness into a matter of ticking boxes. (coughs) The true purpose of a questionnaire is to elicit information. But if you think in terms of tick boxes, then you soon come to think that the more tick boxes, the better the form, the better the questionnaire. Who cares if the data actually mean anything, provided there are boxes to be ticked? But the true purpose of a command, of all the commands, the Ten Commandments and all the law of Moses, is to promote godliness in the heart and mind. Washing the outside of a dish is pointless, because the food goes on the inside. And so it's the inside that needs to be clean. Otherwise, what happens when you put more food in? The corruption just gets worse, doesn't it? You just feed the bacteria that are causing the corruption in the first place. So the metaphorical nature of Jesus' point, I think, is clear from verses 25 and 26 because they say that the Pharisees are like dishes that are just washed on the outside but are full of corruption inside. He's not really talking about crockery. He's talking about minds and hearts. And as we've already said, corruption, it's in the nature of corruption to spread. And this metaphor of the whitewash has found its way into our everyday language, hasn't it? When something nasty has been covered up, we call it a whitewash. Painting it to make it look pretty when, of course, it's all a mess and all falling apart underneath. But again, as I've said, the practice of smartening up your cemeteries is a good idea. Whitewash or possibly some sort of lime plaster was put on the tombs. And it's good to honour the memory of you know, those before, who've gone before, the, the dead. But the Pharisees seem to have had some sort of idea that coating the outside of the tomb somehow has some impact on the ritual uncleanness that the law did indeed prescribe from contact with dead bodies. Their thinking was confused in at least two ways. Firstly, how could a treatment that was designed to make the tomb look pretty have any actual relevance to the issue of contact with the corpse? It didn't make any difference at all. The alleged cure had nothing to do with the actual problem. But they seem to be gone a bit further than that. They also seem to be thinking of the idea that if it looks pretty on the outside, 
it must be pretty inside too. But when it comes to tombs, everybody knows that's wrong. However much gold you might put on the the outside of the sarcophagus, then inside there's still death and decay and maggots and worms and bones. Just making the outside look pretty has no effect at all on what's on the inside. So let's just think about this a bit more. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. That phrase actually occurs in Matthew, Mark and Luke. We read the um, Luke's version at the start. And Jesus gets to that, the heart of religious hypocrisy. If you put yeast in your dough, it will spread to the whole batch. Hypocrisy is dangerous. Hypocrisy spreads. A little bit of hypocrisy didn't seem very important perhaps, but it can easily take over the whole church. It can easily take over the whole of your Christian life. Pharisaic religion was all about externals. Jesus said that in verses 5 to 7. It's all about rules and rituals, the ways of saying and doing things. And these things, of course, are not totally without value. But the risk is that they become ends in themselves. One thing scholars had suggested recently, particularly Tom Wright, is that these rules, in fact, were regarded by the Pharisees as covenant boundary stones, boundary markers. Adherence to them was what distinguished those within the covenant, those to whom God had promised would be his people, to those who were outside. And so if you didn't keep them all, then you were in danger of exclusion from God's love. And that again suggests, you know, the, the more, well, Trump wants to put a fence across the whole border, doesn't he? Um, you know, the more boundary markers you've got, the better it would seem, if that's the way you're, you're looking at them. Who's inside and who's outside? But that was a very odd view of the covenant of Moses, the one we were thinking about again this morning. It was to completely miss the point of the covenant, which after all was based on grace and mercy and redemption, not rules and external experiences. Yes, there was blood on the on the doorpost as it were but that was only an expression of their faith their trust in the God of the covenant their readiness to move where they packed and ready to go was the real sign as it were of their faith grace works from inside out not from outside in so Perhaps we, should, we could ask ourselves, what are some of our covenant markers? The trouble is, once I start asking that question, I could go on all night. So, <laughs> and in a sense, we perhaps need to, all of us need to ask that question for ourselves.
But here are perhaps a few things you might think of. What are the marks of our religion, the marks of our church? What are the marks of your religion and mind? Do we just spout the right evangelical expressions? Anyone for tulip? Could ask people to put their hand up if they know what tulip means. I'm sure some would. Yeah, a few do, yes. <laughs> if you don't, you can, I'm going to say you can ask me afterwards, but perhaps I say ask Phil afterwards. <laughs> tulip actually is um, just an acronym for what are sometimes called the five points of Calvinism or the five doctrines of grace. They mark, perhaps more than anything else, what is known as a Reformed church. And you may be able to explain them all in great detail. You may understand all the fine points of it. And you do well to do that. The doctrines of grace are important. But do you do that so you can look down on other less educated believers? Or do you do that to remind yourself that we're all humbled under the, by the grace of God? Do you make this a covenant boundary stone? Do you make it a marker? You can easily go down that path. I have, I'm not kidding you, I have heard a preacher who pretty much said that if you don't understand the doctrines of election and grace, you may not be real Christians at all. And one of the hearers was so uh, puzzled by that that he said, are you trying to tell me that you think John Wesley was not a, a Christian or something like that. To which uh, the, the preacher replied, well, we can't be sure. It's bizarre. But it, it's, only, you know, it's only carrying that thought to its logical conclusion, isn't it? If we make the doctrines of grace our boundary marker, then we're missing the point of the doctrines of grace, in fact. Beware of such thinking. Well, what about worshipping? It's a bit of a hot topic, isn't it? The way you worship nowadays. Do you put your hands in the air when you're worshipping? Phil was demonstrating this this morning, wasn't he? Some people do. Some churches, everybody does. And if you don't, people say, oh, so-and-so doesn't put his hands up for the Lord. There's certainly nothing wrong with the practice if it's a natural expression of the worship in your heart. Some people do do it here. It's not a thing we particularly encourage. But be careful. Don't start thinking that putting your hands up for the Lord somehow means that you're worshipping better than your neighbour who has their hands by their sides or gripping the hymn book. It's really what's going on in the mind and heart that counts, not what you do with your hands. Or what about you who keep your hands firmly clasped behind your back like I'm doing now? Or you are the one who's tightly gripping the hymn book. Are you thinking that, secretly thinking that makes you more reformed than your neighbour? You know, we, don't, uh, we, don't, we don't do that sort of thing in, in our church. We're not happy clappy here. The thing that really matters is, is the worship real in your heart? And you can grip your hymn book as tight, hard as you like, or you can do all the actions and wave your arms in the air as 
much as you like. And that's fine if that's an expression of what's going on in your heart and mind. But don't substitute the action for the thing itself. What are the other things that people tend to use as boundary markers? Perhaps some sort of emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Well, that's certainly a good thing to be looking out for. The presence of the Spirit among the people, indeed it is a a covenant marker. That's how we know the church. In one sense, it is the church if and only if. The spirit is at work there, otherwise it's dead. The candlestick has been taken away. But how are you going to interpret that? Do you see it in terms of external signs, tongue speaking or something like that, or healings? Or do you think the mark of a spirit-filled church is adherence to the practices and doctrines of our forebears? There are passages of scripture that contend condemn both those attitudes those who put the emphasis on the the more minor signs but those also who have lost their first love are both condemned in the scriptures and we don't need to doubt the scripture tells us what the evidence of a spirit filled church and what a spirit filled life is it's a changed heart, isn't it? Galatians 5, 22 and 23, verse we all know. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul adds, against such things there is no law. Well, there is in a sense a law, of course. Says those are the things we need, but they're inside things, aren't we? They're things that will show on the outside, of course. If they don't show, then we will justifiably wonder whether they're there. But they're things that proceed from the inside out, things that really can't be faked, and perhaps that's what Paul means when he says, Against such things there is no law. You can fake the tithing of Dylan Cumin, as if you really care that the Lord should have his portion. You might even fake innocence of murder. You might get away with it. Who knows how many people have got away with murder because they haven't realized, nobody's realized that a murder is what's been committed. But you can't really fake love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, godliness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Although I'm sure that we could have a pretty good try, but really you can't. They're things that come from the inside out. And that is the true mark, the true fruit of the Spirit. Or to use the words that Jesus used in Matthew 23, justice Mercy, faith, faithfulness. These are the matters of the heart. And they will show on the outside. Verse 26, clean the inside and the outside will look clean. If it doesn't, then it's right to question the presence at all. Jesus said no one lights a lamp and keeps it under a tub. 
Just doesn't, that doesn't make sense either. The intent must show in the action, but the action must proceed from the, from the heart. A hug or a kiss can be deceptive, but if it's not, if it's given with love, then it really means what it appears to mean. Keeping the outside of your dishes clean is good if it's an indication of the state of what's inside. But don't confuse the appearance with the substance. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the nature of hypocrisy. Don't allow your actor's mask to be a cover-up for what is really going on in your heart. That's hypocrisy and wickedness. And that, says the teacher, verse 15, is a shortcut to hell. That is the way, not to the city of life, but the city of destruction. Justice, mercy and faith. Let's remind ourselves to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So let's sing again. So it's 832.